Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We are an Acts 2.42 community, a family on a mission to bring the life of Jesus to Warrington. We hope you're ready to hear what God has to say to you today through his word and by his spirit. Morning church. Okay, so we're in a, a new series, we're three weeks into a new series looking at the Apostles' Creed. For those who don't know, the Apostles' Creed was a statement of beliefs that was drawn up by the early church, um, partly to correct wrong thinking and wrong teaching that was going around, um, to make sure that all believers were grounded in and understood the foundational truths of Christianity. Yeah? So basically, regardless of what denomination of Christianity you would fall into today, as believers, as Christians, we should all be able to say amen, amen, amen to what is in the Apostles' Creed, okay? So today we're going to look at what I think is the best bit. I think I've actually been quite blessed to have been given this. We're looking at the suffering, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So get excited, but get ready for the challenge that comes with it too. That's what I will say. I want to start, though, by reading the Apostles' Creed just so that we've all heard it in its entirety. It says this, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Uh, don't worry about the Holy Catholic Church, by the way. It just means universal. Yeah, we're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church, just for anybody who wobbled a little bit when I said Catholic. Um, so, yeah, this morning we're looking at the suffering, crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to do is take that statement and split it into what I see as, as three obvious parts. Look at a little bit of the theology behind each of those parts. I haven't got all day. This is the biggest thing within Christianity. You could talk about it for 30 years and probably still not cover it. And I've only got 30 minutes. I'll do my best to stick to 30 minutes, I promise. Um, but we're going to split it into three. And then we'll look a little bit at the theology. But then I want to spend more time looking at what that might mean for us as believers today and how we can apply that to our lives. Okay? So suffered under Pontius Pilate. I want to concentrate firstly on the suffering of Jesus Christ. And then crucified, died, and was buried. So I want to look at his death. And then finally, uh, rose again from the dead. So I want to look at resurrection. Okay, so starting with suffering, why did Jesus have to suffer? Why does the creed even mention his suffering? Because it could quite easily have said um, that Jesus was crucified, died, and, and rose again. But they, they, they thought it important, the early church, guided by the Spirit of God, to mention his suffering. So it must be important that he suffered. And it is. You see, the suffering of Jesus didn't begin with the Romans torturing him. 
when, when we as believers talk about the suffering of Christ, or you might have heard it termed the passion of the Christ, we, we're talking about beginning in the garden. So after Jesus had had the Last Supper, and he was in the garden, when he sweated blood, as he asked the Father, is, is there no other way? When he claimed that his soul was sorrowful, even to the point of death, when he watched as one of his closest friends for the last three years, one of the twelve, Judas, betrayed him for some pieces of silver, this was the beginning of the suffering or the passion of the Christ. Sorrow, anguish, betrayal, pain, humiliation. Jesus experienced this kind of suffering in his life. Why? Well, we find the answers in the scriptures. In his suffering, Jesus was demonstrating two crucial characteristics for us to emulate. Humility and obedience. And I will say, if, if you've got your Bibles with you, I'm going to be sort of dipping in and out to different scriptures today rather than one big passage. But for the suffering section, I'd probably have your Bibles open at 1 Peter uh, chapter 2 looking sort of from halfway through verse 20. But yeah, Jesus learned humility and obedience through his suffering. Philippians 2.8 says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then Hebrews 5.8 says, Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So Jesus was humble and obedient through his suffering. And then when we get to 1 Peter chapter 2, sort of halfway through verse 20, and Peter's speaking to the church now, so to Christians, us, yeah? If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Listen to this next bit. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So Jesus suffered to set us an example because we as believers are called to suffer and endure. What about health, wealth, and prosperity, I might hear you shout. Well, we're called to suffer and endure. Again, the obvious question, and I'm going to ask it on our behalf, is why? Why, God? Why call us to suffer and endure? Why should we suffer? Somebody once actually asked C.S. Lewis, the famous author and apologist, the same question, really. Why do the righteous suffer? And he replied, well, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. And we can take it. We can endure suffering, and we can endure suffering for two reasons. And the first of these is because we know our suffering has purpose. Earlier I read that Jesus, even though he was son of God learned obedience through his suffering. Elsewhere, in Paul's letter to the Romans, 
in chapter 5 from verse 3, Paul says that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Again, in James, in his letter in the first chapter, James says that we should count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So enduring suffering enables us to grow in perseverance or steadfastness, which in turn shapes our character and then ultimately brings about hope, perfection and completion. We see examples of this in the world. If you look at um, lumps of coal and then suddenly pressure is applied to a lump of coal and you get a diamond. Or if you look at how metal is refined, metal is refined by putting it through fire. There's a really good illustration of this found in um, uh, Our Daily Bread about uh, a Dr. A. Parnell Bailey who visited an orange grove where an irrigation pump had broken down. And the season was unusually dry and some of the trees were beginning to die for lack of water. And the man who was giving him the tour took Bailey to his own orchard where irrigation was used sparingly. And the man said to him, these trees could go without rain for another two weeks because when they were young, I frequently kept water from them. This hardship caused them to send their roots deeper into the soil for search of moisture. So now my trees are the deepest rooted trees in the area. While others are being scorched by the sun, these are finding moisture at a greater depth. Suffering makes us stronger. So we can endure suffering because we know it has purpose, and a good purpose at that. But I think perhaps more importantly, we can endure suffering because we have Jesus. We have Jesus. In Jesus, we have a God who knows what it is to suffer. He gets it. He gets you. He's not distant and far away and totally removed from suffering. As most of you know, when I first met Jesus, I was trapped in cocaine addiction. And after Jesus delivered me from addiction, I spent the next five years working with men who were also struggling with substance addiction, alcohol or drugs. And something that was often said by the guys that I was supporting was that when they spoke to me about their struggles and their problems, there was somehow an extra level of comfort and assurance because they knew that I'd experienced and gone through what they were going through. And it's the same with Jesus. Jesus knows what it is to struggle. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. So when, not if, when you suffer and struggle, talk to him. Because he sees you, he hears you, and he loves you. 
So Jesus suffered. And then Jesus, it's the creed says, was crucified, died, and was buried. Why did Jesus have to die? It's the gospel message, isn't it? And I'm going to be guilty now massively of preaching to the choir, but just to be clear, God created a perfect world, absolutely perfect, created human beings to love them and for them to love him. And because he loved them so much, he gave them free will. Human beings used that free will to go against God and go their own way, and therefore sin and death entered the world. That's why we die, and that's unfortunately been the pattern for every human being since. Every single one of us thinks and does things that are against the will of God. But God loves us, and he wants to spend eternity with us. So the only way he could resolve it was to send his son, for God the Son, to become a human being, live a perfectly sinless life, and then give his own life in sacrifice to pay for all of our sins. And then he died, and he rose again, conquered death, and through faith in Jesus, through faith in what I've just told you, if you've never heard that before, I know most of you have, but in faith in that and through repentance and a commitment to following him, we can have eternal life. Hallelujah. And again, I might be stating the obvious here, but just to be absolutely crystal clear, because there's some wonky thinking outside in the secular world and in other sort of offshoots, if you like, of Christianity, I really want to make this statement. Jesus really died. He really died. He didn't swoon. He didn't get a little bit lightheaded and pass out for a few days and then wake up. He was dead. Dead and buried. Romans didn't mess about when they decided to kill somebody. The creed even says that his soul descended into hell. Just to really hammer it home, like uh, Sheol to the Jews and Hades to the Greeks, the place where the souls of the dead went, Jesus' soul went there. He was dead. And now you might be thinking, why is this guy going overboard about the fact that Jesus was really dead? Well, there's a reason, and it's this. Because if you're a follower of Jesus today, then your old nature, the you before you knew Christ, should be just as dead. Not literally or physically, obviously, but in a very real way, the you who you were before you encountered Christ should be dead. Now, hear what I'm saying and don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that therefore Christians should be absolutely perfect all of the time and never do anything wrong. That, that's, that's not what I'm saying. But I want to just give you a few verses from Scripture. Galatians 2.20, Paul says to the church in Galatia, I have been crucified with Christ. He hadn't literally and physically, obviously. He was still alive. He was writing. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul again, Romans chapter 6, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him 
by baptism into death. We, collective, all of us, believers, buried with Jesus in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And if for whatever reason you're a bit unsure about Paul, here's Jesus in Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 23 to 24. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, so if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, you want to be a disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Just for clarity, when Jesus says, if you want to follow him, if you want to be his disciple, you need to take up a cross daily. He's talking about a cross of crucifixion. And as we've already mentioned, crucifixion equals death. So what does all this mean for us today? How do we, as individual believers, die with Christ every day? Now, it's partly through aligning our behavior, our behaviors with what the Bible teaches to be moral and righteous, yes. But I'm not going to speak into that too much this morning. What I feel led to talk about this morning is to focus on how we take up our cross and die through sacrifice. We sacrifice our own wants and our own desires for the sake of God and for the sake of other people. And it's funny that Dave took some time to mention giving because that sacrifice, church, usually comes in the form of our time, how we spend our time, and our money and possessions and resources. Each of us, every day or every week or every month, can choose to spend our free time and our spare money either entirely on ourselves, or we can spend it on other people and on advancing the kingdom of God. And by the way, those two things genuine, generally go hand in hand. If you want to rapidly expand the kingdom of God, then start loving people with your time and resources. Show them Christ in you. 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now I do... In life, church, I see loads of examples of this. I see a lot of examples of sacrifice. One is, um, I'm part of the Vine ministry, and I see it in my, my brothers and sisters in the Vine homeless ministry, going out in the cold on a Monday night when it's raining or it's icy and it's snowing, ministering to rough sleepers in Warrington, when, trust me, every one of us would much rather be at home with a brew and a good book or tucked up in bed. And I witnessed another example of sacrifice recently. It was only a small thing, but I feel like it really gets at the heart of what I'm talking about. And this person's asked to remain anonymous, so I'll, I'll, I'll honour that. So I was in Tesco in Witness last Sunday, and it was bitter cold, really cold outside. And the person who I was with had been bought for Christmas uh, a brand new pair of gloves. Um, they'd hardly been worn. I think this was probably only the first or second time that they'd worn them. And they were the only pair of gloves that the person owned. They didn't have a second pair. 
And on the way back to the car, we passed a lady who was selling the big issue. And she didn't actually try to sell it to us. She just sort of smiled at us and she said, hello, how are you? And, and we sort of did the same, being really polite. Ah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't carry any cash, but God bless you. Have a lovely day. And we just walked past, got in the car, left it at that, set off. And then we'd, we'd not gone very far at all when the person we was with stopped the car and said, I need to go back and give that lady my gloves. And that's what they did. Now, that might seem like a really small, insignificant thing. A pair of gloves. Probably not a particularly expensive pair of gloves. But it's the principle in this case that matters. How easy would it have been for that person to make excuses and justify not giving the gloves when they felt that nudge? They might have said, oh, but these were a gift. And how rude would that seem to the person who gave them? No, I can't give these away. Or they might have said, oh, but these gloves have real sentimental value. Or these are the only gloves I've got. If I had a second pair of gloves, then I'd definitely give them. Or even, well, what about me? My hands are cold. So let me ask you, church. Are you giving everything that you can to following Jesus, loving people and loving God, Or are you making excuses as to why you can't? If you were to take an honest look at how you use your free time and your resources, would it look like a person who was committed to building the kingdom of God? Or would it look like a person who was just looking after number one? And again, don't hear what I'm not saying. When it comes to money... Don't cripple yourself so that you can't afford the essential bills or you can't afford to feed your kids. That's, that's not what I'm asking. Have a look at what's left. That's the, that's, that's the way I do it. Essential stuff paid and then with the things that you can choose what to do with it, what do you do with it? Do you sacrifice? Do you take up your cross? Same principle with your time. Don't stop going to work because you feel like you need to go out and minister to some people. You've got to go to work. And don't stop sleeping. Don't burn out for Jesus. You've got to sleep. But the time that you've got that you can choose, I can do what I want with this time now. Are we looking at sacrifice or are we looking at serving yourself? What might that look like? What might sacrifice look like? It might look like, like Dave said, it might look like starting to give more financially. You might look at your finances and go, actually, yeah, I've got buckets left at the end of the month when the, that's not most, it's not me, I'm just going to be real. But some of you might be in that privileged position and be like, yeah, I can actually probably give more to advancing God's kingdom. It might look like joining a server team or a ministry team if you're not doing that currently. And listen, some people are physically unable to do things like server teams and ministry teams. So let me ask you this, if that's you, how much of your free time do you spend praying for your brothers and sisters and for the advancement of the kingdom? That's something that we can all do. Or, better still, 
your sacrifice might look like rolling your sleeves up and getting involved in the next church plant, which, by the way, is probably going to happen in September in a little place called Newton the Willows. But we can't have the resurrection without the crucifixion. Romans 6.5 says this, If we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Emphasis on the if. If you've been united with Jesus in a death like his. And that leads us nicely into the final part of this message. The best bit, the exciting bit, so you can all breathe now. We're going to talk about the resurrection. <laughs> the, the gospel narratives tell us that three days after Jesus was dead and buried, some women went to the tomb to anoint his body with spices. And when they got to the tomb, the stone had been rolled away and the tomb was empty. And we later read that Jesus then appeared to a number of people. In the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 24, Peter is recorded as saying, But God raised Jesus up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He then later says in verse 32, And we are all witnesses of it. Now, Jesus didn't appear to them in a spiritual sense or in a metaphorical sense. He appeared to them in a very literal, very physical, very real way. He had holes in his hands and in his side where he'd been pierced during the crucifixion. His bodily resurrection was as real and as absolute as his death. Jesus did really die, but he didn't stay dead. He conquered death as only he could and came back to life never to die again. To live forever. Thank you, yes. Past forever. And if you're a Christian in the room today, then that statement, the truth in that statement, should be what you hang all of your hope on. Because as we just read, those who've been united in his death, those who die to self, those who take up their cross and follow him down the hard road and through the narrow gate, they will share in his resurrection. Because Jesus conquered death, we will conquer death. Because Jesus lives forever, we will live forever with him. We can, with the Apostle Paul, say this, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. But let me ask you a question, church. Let's just bring it back down. Is that enough for you? Is that enough? When you read a scripture like 2 Timothy 3.12, where Paul says, Indeed, all, not some, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Not might, 
Not some people might do, the ones who are really full on. No, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Or what about when Jesus says to his disciples in John's gospel, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And he said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Does the promise of an eternal life after death, where there's no hatred, no suffering, does that comfort you? Can you walk in peace and joy despite the promised suffering and persecution because you've got an eternal perspective? Or are you completely wrapped up in and consumed by life this side of eternity? Because church, we win. In the end, when the whistle blows or the trumpet sounds, we win. I like to think of life this side of eternity a bit like watching the highlights of a football match that you know your team wins. Imagine a Liverpool supporter decided to sit down tonight and watch a rerun of the Champions League final in 2005. When Milan went 3-0 up, that Liverpool supporter's not going to be flapping and panicking because they know that the victory belongs to Liverpool. It's exactly the same for us as believers. When we go through hardships, when we go 3-0 down, we don't need to flap and panic because we know we win in the end. The Apostle Paul says it brilliant in Romans 8.18. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Not worth. But I know some of you are going through sufferings right now very real it's easy for me to stand up here on a sunday morning when we've just had awesome worship and filled with the spirit and be saying ah, you just charge through all that suffering we win it. i know it hurts suffering when we're going through it hurts but jesus feels your pain jesus knows what it is to suffer let him carry you through it and remember, this suffering has divine purpose. You might not see it right now. You might not be able to see that what you're going through has some sort of divine purpose, but it does. And I'll tell you why it does, because the Bible says it does. And it's a purpose that works itself out for your good and for his glory. In Romans, it says that all things work together for the good of those who follow God and are called according to his purpose. One day, when that trumpet sounds, if you have been united in his death, then you will receive the blessings of eternal life. We've come to the end of this week's message. We hope you've been impacted and inspired. Please keep up to date with everything that's happening by visiting our website at www.lifechurchwarrington.com.